prayer this morning that you just want to yearn and burn with a, a true, unadulterated passion for Jesus Christ. And I pray that God is, is going to make us and shape us to, to do that. And I believe that as a church that God can do that, that he can radically continue to transform us as individuals during this Daniel fast, that he can give us an intensity for him that is going to be unparalleled for us. My goal during this Daniel fast is to be close to God and experience his presence and to come out of it loving God more than I went in it. And I believe that God can do that. I believe that he can do that in your life. I believe that he can do that in your heart, because if he does it in your life and if he does it in your heart, he can do it in every area of your life. He can he can take control of your marriage. He can take control of the way you view your job or your children or or your storm or your situation. If we are intimate with God, it changes our perspective. God can change your perspective here today. Let me tell you about a guy who came to yearn for the Lord when he was a teenager and how that happened. The story is told of, of a, a gentleman um, who is, is now a Christian, who is actually related to Billy Graham, um, about how one day as a teenager, he did something that he should not have done. His father, of course, had a, a really nice car, and uh, he was always looking for an opportunity to drive it. His father left home and left the keys there and said, do not move this car. The son ignored him. He said, you know what? I'm just going to take it for a little joy ride. And he took the car for a joyride, and he completely wrecked his father's car. Totaled it. Wrecked it. His father came home. I think he was traveling on business. And, and they finally came home, and he found out the news. He didn't say anything to his son until it was dinner time. The son sat down with the father and the, with the entire family, and they're sitting there eating. And, and the son is just waiting to get hammered. He's just waiting. In his heart, he's just waiting for his father to say something so he can break down. And his father looks at him, and he sees that his, his son is in turmoil, and he knows he's in big trouble. And instead of hammering him with judgment, instead of coming down on him and saying, you know that what you did was wrong, his father took a different approach. He looked at the son and said, tomorrow we're going to go out, and we're going to buy you a new car. He said, I know what you did was wrong, and you know what you did is wrong. But we're going to go out and we're going to get you a new set of wheels. The son testifies that at that moment, Christianity became real to him. Even though he grew up in a Christian home, even though he had heard the gospel over and over and over, at that moment, everything hit. And he said, at that moment, he gave his life to the Lord. He was like, of course, if somebody was coming to me and said, if they was going to give me a car too, I might give my life to the Lord as well. But this is what happened. It wasn't the fact that his father had given him a new car that won him over. It was the fact that his father, even though he deserved judgment, even though he deserved his father's wrath, even though he deserved to be punished, probably until he graduated high school or whatever, Instead, his father extended mercy. He extended mercy. That is a great picture of what we have received as Christians. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul has been doing in trying to show this church, this group of believers in Rome, believers that he's never met, but that he's eager to meet as he writes from 
Corinth to them. For 11 chapters, he has been pointing to them and trying to teach them about how great God is, about how wonderful his mercy is. Mercy is God extending, God not punishing us when we deserve it. Grace is God not only not punishing us when we deserve it, but God blessing us instead (laughs) of punishing us. And that's what we see happening in verse 1 here. It says, therefore, Paul says, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So Paul is saying, as a result of you receiving mercy, therefore, since this has happened, therefore do this. As a result of God's goodness, do this. And what has Paul been talking about? What is this therefore pointing back to? It's pointing back to the first 11 chapters. Paul has just been showing God off. He, he shows us early on in the chapter, from chapters 1 to 3, that each of us are, are born wanting to worship created things. And that's sin. Giving supreme worth to a created thing is sin. He shows us in chapter, chapters 3, verse 6, that that's all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And he shows us that the wages of sin, since we all have sinned, since we all try to fulfill our hearts and our lives and try to fill it with things other than God to find our ultimate satisfaction, he says that we deserve death. Why? Because God is our creator. He's the one who's made us, and he's made us for a purpose. And when we try to find our fulfillment outside of him, we, we curse him. We say, we don't want you. We want, we want someone else. And for a God who is as powerful and as awesome as he is, this is blasphemy. So he says, you all deserve death. But then he goes on in chapter 5, and he shows us this glorious truth about how even though we deserve death, God has made us righteous. He has called us to be in a relationship with him. And that as we accept his son, Jesus Christ, he no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our mistakes. He no longer sees that we have made a wreck of our lives by living apart from him. But now he sees the blood of his son. And the blood of his son, the sacrifice of his son, if we look to his son in faith, gives us a new record with God. And we are declared righteous by God. And we live our Christian life now free of guilt, free of condemnation, free of of shame. We have received a, a new life and a new hope, and it is in Christ Jesus. This mercy is so amazing that it says no matter if we truly have put our faith and trust in Christ, no matter what we do, We cannot be separated from this God's love. Just like that son could not be separated from his father's love over wrecking that car, we cannot be separated from God's love. Romans chapter 8. Then in Romans chapter 9 and 11, he continues to show us how great and how merciful God is by pointing to the fact that God, before the foundation of the world, knew that he was going to extend mercy to you. So even while you were his enemy, (laughs) he was doing something, uh, doing an act through his son that would make you his friend. So Paul goes on and he says, therefore, 
I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of what he has done for you to do something, to do something. Listen, mercy motivates our transformation. You should write that down. God's mercy is what motivates our transformation as Christians. God's mercy is what motivates our transformation as Christians. Just as that young man received mercy from his father, and he said that that act alone allowed him to, 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 to relook at his life and to look at God and to look at the gospel that he had been here. Just as that act alone allowed him to do that and, and, and encouraged him to lay his life before the Lord and give his life to the Lord, so should what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, so should that motivate you and me to offer our lives to God. Guilt should not be your motivational factor for you to be here this morning. If you come to church Sunday after Sunday because you'll feel guilty or someone will make you feel guilty, if you don't come, you don't understand the gospel. What motivates us to live for Christ is what he has done for us on the cross. Listen to what he says. So, so as we look at this challenge today, we're going to look at how God's mercy motivates us to do three things. The first thing is that it motivates us to be genuine worshipers. It motivates us to be genuine worshipers. If we are going to, to worship God in spirit and in truth, it is because his mercy, his grace is constantly before us. It's in view. Mercy is not the rear view window of Christianity. It is the front window of Christianity. If you're driving a car, you know how you use the rear view and you use the side windows? That's not what God's mercy should be to us. It should be that front window. We should view our Christian life through God's mercy, through his kindness. So listen to what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, let's, we're going to unpack that a little bit because this all has to do with worship. Worship. He says, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What is he saying? He's saying, as a result of God's mercy, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your mouth, your feet, it all belongs to God. We, we should offer it to God. We should lay it before God and say, Lord, what I see, what I, what I watch, what I hear, what I say, what my hands do, where my feet go, <laughs> it's no longer up to me, but it's up to you. And I, I devote all of this to you. I give it all to you because of what you have done for me. It means that every area of our life is before God. We place our dreams before God. We place our fears before God. We, 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 we place our ambitions before God. We place our children before God. 
We place our jobs before God. We place our relationships before God. We place our romance life before God. And we say, God, I'm offering this to you. This is yours. This is yours. Why is this yours? Because you have paid for me. You you bought me. And how did you buy me? You bought me with your son's blood. And I understand that if you had not purchased me with your son's blood, that I would be alienated from you. So it's yours. Therefore, I urge you, he says, I make an appeal to you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Why a living sacrifice? That sounds kind of weird. What is he saying there? This is what Paul is saying. God is a God of sacrifice. We see that from the very beginning, going back to the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked. They were hiding themselves behind, what, fig leaves in the garden, thinking that God didn't see them, living in shame. God then talked to them, and he he told them, hey, this is what it's going to be like because of your sin. But what did he do? He covered them. And he covered them with, with, with with, with wool, okay? He sacrificed an animal and he covered them in order that they would not live in shame. So we see this theme of sacrifice all throughout the Bible. What people would do is they would build an altar to God. They would take an animal and they would put that animal on the altar and they would kill that animal. Why would they do that? They would do that because that act was was showing or signifying that they understood that because they decided to please themselves or live for themselves outside of God's will, that they know that they deserve death. Why does a person deserve death if they disobey God? Because God created them (laughs) to obey him and to live for him. And that sounds hard and heavy to some people, but that's really not hard and heavy. That's the best thing. When we are in God's will, we are experiencing the very best of life because God's will, as this text says, it is good and it is perfect and it is pleasing. God doesn't tell us to do things and to live for them because, because it's, it's, it's horrible, but he tells us to do it because it's good. Because the best possible outcome over our lifespan, even in eternity, will, will come out of us living for him. And when we don't choose that route, we deserve death. Just like some of you, you got a, maybe a, a remote control or a radio at home or something that does not work. It should work, but it does not work. And maybe it's going to cost a lot of money for you to get it fixed, or maybe it's not even worth fixing. When you find something that's not doing what it's supposed to do, what do you do? You throw it away, right? And why do we throw it away? Because it's no good. Well, God says, I created you to live for me. And if you choose not to live for me, you can't be with me for all eternity. And you can't experience life with me on this earth. But God is gracious. When we sin and when we fall short, he made a way for us to be reconciled with him and to live with him. And that's through sacrifice. That's through blood being shed. So they would build this altar and they would put an animal on this altar and that animal would die. And that would signify the fact that they understood that they deserve that death. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sin. God is a God of sacrifice. That's how he set it up from the beginning. That's how he set it up from the beginning. 
Those animals would die. They would be a dead sacrifice. Well, Paul says, you are a living sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice. This is a good picture of a living sacrifice from the scripture. It's Isaac. Remember the story of Isaac, Abraham's son, how Abraham took him up on a mountain because God had told him to sacrifice his son because he was testing this man to see if he was going to be faithful or for Abraham to see how much he loved God. God already knew. And he takes Isaac and he puts him on an altar and he's getting ready to kill Isaac, but he doesn't. Isaac is on the altar, but he is living. I say, well, that's kind of weird. He didn't die. Yes, he did. He was living, but he was dead. By Isaac laying down on that altar. By Isaac saying to his father, Father, even though I don't understand it, even though this isn't really benefiting me or pleasing to me, Father, whatever you want, I'm yours. He died to himself. He was alive, but he was dead. (laughs) Paul said, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, as you look out this spiritual window, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer all of you to me as a living sacrifice. You're alive, but you're dead. What are you dead to? You're learning to die to that old man, that old flesh, to that carnal nature. He says you are a living sacrifice. And that's what this challenge is all about. It's, we're saying it's not about me. God, I'm living, but I'm dead. <laughs> I'm living, but I'm learning to die to flesh, to crucify my flesh. And I'm doing all of this because I know that I received from you something that I never could earn and something that I don't deserve. Now, this is interesting. Let's look at the text real quick. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Notice what he said. He did not say, I urge you to make a sacrifice. He said, I urge you to offer your bodies, to offer your life as a sacrifice. We, as Christians, we don't make sacrifices. We are sacrifices. There's a big distinction there. A huge distinction between me having a mindset of I'm making a sacrifice. I'm making a sacrifice by giving tithes and offerings. I'm making a sacrifice by coming to church on Sunday or coming to Sunday school. I'm making a sacrifice by being nice to this person or doing something I did. No, that's not the attitude. Paul said you are a sacrifice. Every part of your life is sacrificial. So making a sacrifice shouldn't seem odd because you are the sacrifice. He says offer your lives as a living, as a living sacrifice. Give, give all of you to me. He says, for this is... This is what? This is your spiritual act of worship. And before this, he says it is holy and it is what? It is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. So he says we we offer our lives, we offer our body, we offer all of us to us. We 
daily are on an altar before the Lord saying, Lord, I want to yearn for you. Lord, I want to love you. Lord, it's not about me. Lord, help me to die to myself. Help me to die to my will. Help me to die to loving this person that I know I have no business loving. Help me to die to living life to make as much money as I can and, 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 and even being willing to step on people on the way. Help me to die to bitterness. Help me to die to anger. Help me to die to unforgiveness. Help me to die to having a nasty attitude. Help me to die to living with a mantra that says your life is here to serve me. And Father, help me to live for you. Help me to live with the mantra that says my life is here to serve and worship you. Okay, so how does this affect us as worshipers? Well, this has everything to do with worship. He says, offer yourselves as a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your, your spiritual act of worship. When we think of holy and acceptable to God, I think right away of Cain and Abel. We know that story. How one brother came before God and he offer, had an offering for God and it was whack. His attitude was horrible. And he just was kind of like, here, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I got to do. God said, hold on, homie. You're coming at me the wrong way. <laughs> wrong way. The wrong way. <laughs> It says, if you go and, 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 and do the offering right and come in my presence like you know who I am, I'll be willing to forgive you. But if not, trouble lies at the door. But then he had a brother, his brother Abel, who offered him a, a pleasing offering. A pleasing offering. God wants us to offer ourselves to him, not under compulsion, like I said, not under guilt, but in view of mercy. And this is true worship. How do you know if you're worshiping God the right way? How do you know if your worship is holy and acceptable to God? It's not because we're perfect. <laughs> God's not looking for perfection. His son did that for us. But how do we know if we are worshiping God the right way or if we're worshiping something else? We know by looking at what we make sacrifices for. You with me? We know if we are truly worshiping God or something else by looking at not only what we make sacrifices for, but what we make sacrifices for, believing that it will bring us happiness. Am I worshiping you, God, or am I worshiping something else? Am I worshiping you, God, or am I worshiping my girlfriend? Am I worshiping you, God, or am I worshiping this job? Lord, I just don't know. Well, let me take a look and let me see who has priority in my life. Or what has priority in my life? And I don't necessarily mean time, but I mean quality. That's something ladies know, yeah. Better give me some quality time. When you're at, at work, what do you tend to, to start to scheme for on the internet? Are you constantly scheming for, trying to figure out a way you're going to get those new pumps or those new Jordans? And never thinking of a way that you can that you can that you can give to God or figure out where you can cut some corners to give more to God. What do we make our sacrifices for? We make sacrifices constantly for our children. We'll bend our schedule. We'll miss church. We'll do this. If if little Ricky, or little, little Bobo got something. But are we ever willing to miss something? 
that we like because of our love for God. So how do you identify what you're worshiping? You identify what you're worshiping by looking at what you make sacrifices for. Because that's idolatry. That's idolatry. So what are you making sacrifices for? What are you constantly making sacrifices for? Who? Believing that it will give you, it will give you happiness. That's what worship is. It is ascribing. It is giving supreme worth to something or someone. And either we are doing that, giving that worth to God, or we're giving that worth to something or someone else. And maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we're worshiping ourselves. Maybe we're worshiping our own comfort. Maybe we're worshiping respect. Maybe we're constantly thinking of a way we can have other people think good about us. Or maybe we're worshiping ourselves by constantly doing things, fishing for compliments to make us feel better. When we worship God, we're, we're doing everything for him. And the, the end goal is that he would be made famous, that he would be made glorious, that his name would be exalted. And why are we doing that? We're doing that because God made the ultimate sacrifice for us. That Jesus is the ultimate able, that he laid his life down perfectly for us in order that we would have life in him. What do you... What do you raise your voice for when you talk? And I know as a guy, our old man, we're talking about sports, and we're in an environment where I can be free. I'm going to try to argue a little bit. I'm going to raise my voice for it because I'm excited about what I'm talking about. Maybe we can look at what we're worshiping by by looking at what we get excited about when we talk. What gets your heart fluttering? Every time she walk in a room, my heart skips a beat. (laughs) So this is the challenge for us. This is going to be our challenge. I'm challenging us as worshipers to identify the areas of our lives that we are making sacrifices to and to look and to see if that is competing with our affection for God. And during this 21-day fast, I am asking you to, to, to take a, a look, examine your hearts. And if you know there's something that you are putting before God and you, you know that you love more than God, and, and, and some of us, especially in this culture, we say it's nothing. Why is it nothing? Because it's nothing. I mean, I may not think about God. I may not read the Bible. I may not ever talk to him, but I come to church every now and then. But I really, I know who, where my help comes from. I know where my strength comes from. That's like me telling my wife, sweetheart, listen, I don't come home every night, and I don't call you every day, and I don't ever check with you to see if you're doing well, but girl, you, you know I love you. You, you know, you know I, girl. We're going to Look at verse 2, and we're going to cut it off here. We'll pick it up next week. Amen? So identify that area in your life. Once you identify that area in your life, get some verses. Memorize those verses. Soak on those verses. Maybe sit down with someone who you know is a mature Christian and just confess to them, listen, I am worshiping this thing. I am giving supreme worth to this thing. This thing has a grip on me. I love it, and I know I'm more excited about it more than I am about God. Admit that and then turn from it by looking at scriptures, hiding that in your heart and saying, Lord, forgive me. 
Give me a desire for you. Help me to yearn for you. Help me not to just bring uh, uh, squirmish grain before you like Cain did, but help me to bring some substance to you like Abel. Because you're good. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect whim. So, so God is challenging us as worshipers. The second thing that God is challenging us is, is as, as worshipers, hold on one second, I want to make sure I get this right, <laughs> is as learners, amen, as learners. I want to be consistent with our, our worksheet here, as learners. God is challenging us as learners, as learners. Now, when we talk about God, we have to admit that the amazing thing about this merciful God is that he is not distant and that he is not unknowable. But rather, this, this God that we talk about, that he is, he is near and that he is a God who wants to know you and me. We were not created to worship a God that we cannot know, that we cannot fellowship with, but we were created to worship a God that we can know. And in the Old Testament, we know that God revealed himself through the law and the prophets. And in the New Testament, we know that God revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and that we can fully know God and see what God is like by looking at his son. Paul here goes from teaching us what it means to be a worshiper to teaching us what it means to be a learner. And he says that every single person is a student of one or two things. Either we're a student of this world, we're enrolled in classes of this world, or we're a student of God. Either we are being conformed to the image and the pattern of this world or we are being transformed and conformed, Romans 8, 29, to the image of Christ. Everybody's in school. Somebody asks you, where'd you go to school? You'd be like, listen, either, either you're in, in the school of Jesus or the school of everybody's a student. You're a student. And everybody's being shaped, conformed to look like something. Either you're being shaped and conform to look more like the world, to look like little Jeezy, or you're being shaped and conformed to look like Jesus. Straight up. He says, do not be conformed to this world, the image, the pattern of this world, the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world deals with drama, the way the world uh, shapes its schedule, the way the world decides who they're going to be romantic with. Be in a relationship with, says do not be conformed by the image of, or the pattern of this world, but rather be conformed, be, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's deep. The word transformed there in the Greek is, is from the same word that we get the word metamorphosis from. It means to, to, to evolve into something over a, a period of time, to progress, to look like something over a period of time. See, once we come to Christ, we are made to be new creatures in Christ. We're new people. We're a new creation. And at that moment, we have to learn what it means to, to follow Jesus and what it means to be like Jesus. We just don't, just don't all of a sudden turn up to be like Christ. It is a process. And the way that we excel in that process to look like Jesus is by quitting the school that we were in, <laughs> Quitting our commitment to the university of Satan and joining the university of Christ. 
And then retraining our minds, renewing our minds. Renewing our minds. Some of us, were really struggling with this thing called Christianity because we are taking so many classes at the University of Satan. Or because we're dating someone who's a student at the University of Satan. Or because most of our friends go to the University of Satan. Straight up, that's what the Bible said. Either you're a God worshiper or you're a Satan worshiper. And Satan worshipers can be nice. They can be, they can be, they can be kind. They can be good people, nice people. But they're living life for their own advantage. Either you're in the world or you're not. And God is saying, as, as Christians, since we are in Christ, and we have been given this new life that our lives should be, be making that progress to look more like Christ because God is doing a work on us. And the way he works is, is through, his, through his word. So the way that we are transformed, he said, is by renewing our mind. Our mind controls our body. It controls how we act. Now, when I say that, there's two types of, of thoughts or things we hear. That means, oh, we, we need to be more intellectual, some people think. Like, we need to be these super intellectuals. Paul is not saying that transformation comes by us being intellectuals. Thinking deep and long about God is a part of renewing your mind, but that's not the only thing. There's another part of knowledge, and that knowledge is relationship. It's living with God. It's walking with God. It's talking with God. It's waiting on God. It's being silent in God's presence. Our mind is transformed as we pick up God's word, as we do three things, as we read it, as we meditate on it, and as we memorize it. What happens when our mind is transformed? And we'll close right here. What happens when we are living with a a transformed mind? Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's someone here used to say, I want to know what God wants from me. I want to know what, what's best for me. I, I want to I live for Christ. I want to know his will. I want to know why he created me, why he has me here on this earth. And I'm here to tell you that the way that you learn that is by having your mind transformed by his word. That's not going to be some sign or it's not, not some, some mystical thing that's going to happen. You know God by knowing his word by becoming a learner, a student of him. That's what we see with the disciples. Jesus says, come, follow me. And what does he do from there on? They are following him. They are living life with them. They are listening to him teach. God is calling you to be like Martha, to sit at his feet. Sometimes we're so busy. God's saying, sit at my feet, be a learner, be transformed. Chris Brown says he can transform you. Jesus says, no, I can transform you. I I can transform you. Let me transform you. Because if I transform you, when things go wrong, you won't lose your mind. Because if I transform you, when your job said we're laying off, you're not not thinking suicidal thoughts. You're thinking the Lord give it, the Lord take it away. Because when I transform you and someone step on your toes, you're not going to kick them back. You're going to say, okay, it's cool. (laughs) I can still love you. But you also, you learn what his will is. 
He said, as your mind is renewed, you, you get to see, you get to feel, you get to learn what God wants from you. And what God wants from you, it's good. Now, we've got people who want things for us, and we yoke ourselves with them, and we find out that it, they weren't no good. Oh, y'all been. We all been there. Well, a lot of us been there. Amen. Everybody except uh, Minister Nate. But God says, what I have for you, it's good. Not only is it good, but it's pleasing. Now, the will of God may not always be pleasing at the moment, but after God takes us through something, we can look back and we can say, yeah, that was pleasing. You, you stretched me. You grew me. You made me to look more like your son. And even when we're going through it and it doesn't feel pleasing, it's pleasing to God. Is your mind being renewed? Are you allowing God to transfer you? We stay in a culture of entertainment. We do. Man, we watch TV. We can just be entertained for hours. We can go to the movies and we can be entertained. Not only can we be entertained just by watching a movie, but the movie, you can now be in the movie while you watch the movie. Like you can look up and, and feel like you're touching someone. 3D, right? You don't even have to do that at the movies now. You can do that at home. You're like, I do that at home. Put my glasses on, and I'm watching 3D. It's entertaining. It is. Everything is big. Everything is loud. And then sometimes we come to God that way. We want our sermons to be entertaining. We want it to be loud. The pastor is not, as, as the word says, to rightly divide the word of truth. Now he has, he's got to entertain me. Pastor Jamal got to climb a ladder every Sunday. And he's got to sweat. And if he didn't sweat, we've been duped. God often speaks in a, a quiet, still voice. But we've, uh, this, the pattern of this world is loud and quick and flashy. And, it, and, and fulfilling to our, our flesh, and we kind of get stooped. We get stooped right into it. This is us during the week, right? And then on Sunday, we try to make it back, but we can't really feel it because we, we've been pulled this way all week. And sometimes we get, we do, we feel it, and we're like, yeah. And then we write back, and it's a, it's a constant fight. That's why the Bible teaches us that we have to meditate. We have to know God's word. We have to sit in it. That's what the early church was doing. And when God's people come together and they accept the challenge to be worshipers and to be learners, big things do, do happen. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, uh, in chapter 2, Peter is preaching to a large crowd and an explosion happens. The Bible says that they were listening. They were learning. And they learned that they were responsible for crucifying the Son of God. And something big happened. A big explosion happened. You know what happened? 3,000 people gave their lives to the Lord. And you know what happened after they did that? The Bible says that they began to meet in each other's homes, to pray and to eat and to enjoy life together. And they began to open God's word daily, the Bible says, together. They had jobs, they had careers. Maybe they didn't have iPods and iPhones, so they were a little less busy, but, but their minds were being transformed. And what happened? God used them 
to reach the world. We are sitting here today because there were some crazy Christians who said we are not going to conform to the pattern of this world, but we are going to offer our lives to God as a living sacrifice, and we are going to give him our minds and say, God, renew it. God, wash me. God, purge me. God, take my eyes. Take my lips. Take my ears. Not, not because I have to, but because I want you to, because I'm looking, out of li- looking at life through the lens of mercy. So as learners, I want to challenge you during this 21-day fast uh, to get in your word, to get in your word. As a, as a church, we offer uh, some, some great opportunities for you to do that. We have Sunday school, which meets uh, every Sunday at 930. And the good thing about Sunday school is you can get into a small group of people, with a small group of people, or a, 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 a group, and you can just learn God's word. You can talk about the scriptures together. Talk about God together. Apply it to your life. Ask questions. So you can't ask me a question right now. You can, but I may or may not answer it right now, right? But Sunday school is so powerful because we get to dialogue. We get to talk about God's word together. So if you're not a part of a Sunday school class, I, I, I urge you to do so. You're struggling in your Christian life. You're saying, God, I want more of you, but nothing is happening. Nothing is working because we come in and we hear a sermon for for an hour and we say, well, I'm not changing. Let me tell you something. That's not going to change you. Just like you watching your favorite show for an hour a week is not going to change you. Have to stay in it. And God's word is so good. I, I shouldn't even once you get in it, I won't even have to motivate you to get in it. So we grow to be living sacrifices that look more like Christ, not by running in the doors on Sunday morning and leaving, but by building relationships with each other and learning God's word. You need someone to speak into your life. I need someone to constantly be speaking into my life. Talked to a a believer here recently, a person who I grew up going to church with and kind of knowing they were in church. Uh, This week, they're in another state, and I talked to them, and their life was a, it was completely off track. And as I was telling them, hey, you know, this sin is, is really against God. I mean, it is, this is a blatant sin against God. This is bad. They just kept justifying. And I had to say, do you go to church anymore? Oh, I make it when I can. Right? They lost their perspective on God because they lost their perspective on God's word and God's people. So not only Sunday school, but we have Wednesday night Bible study. Now, our, our Bible studies right now are not like a lot of other places. We are not preaching sermons from the pulpit. We are having Bible study. It's a small group of people. We come together, we talk, people ask questions, and we actually pray together. Why? Because we believe that that's how we're going to be built up. Amen. So, it's not, we're not coming together to be entertained. We're coming together to meet God and to learn more about God. Awesome study going on right now on the attributes of God. Men are leading us through that study. The attributes of God, that sounds boring. Wow. Let me break the word attributes down. This is what God is like. This is who God is. You say, well, I don't want to, I need to learn about how to get over this problem. I'm trying to figure out who I'm going to take to prom and you want to talk about what God is like. Well, let me tell you something. If you know what God is like, you'll know who to take to prom. If you know what God is like, You'll know who you should be dating and not dating. 
Because you want a person who reflects God, who's living life with the mantra, my life to serve you and not your life to serve me. For some of us, we just breaking down right now, dating people who's living a life that says, my life, your life is for me. That's what the world says. Your life is here for me. The gospel says, my life is here for you. My life is here for you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, because your son transforms us. He transforms us to look more like himself through your spirit, Father God. You continue to make us to look more like you, Father. We thank you, Lord, because we know that if we get in your word and if we, if we walk with you daily, if we offer ourselves, offer all of ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, that you will take care of our lives. You know what to do with us. Other people don't. But you know what to do with us. You know what's best for us. And we know that we can trust you with our lives because of what you allowed your son to do on our behalf. You allowed him who knew no sin to become sin on that cross, Lord, in order that we might be the righteousness of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for accepting the challenge to live your life with the mantra that says, it's not about me. It's about my father and his will and his children, those who he is adopting into his family. It's about the church. It's about worshipers and learners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.